Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week, I am speaking to Sam Moore, who with Alex Roberts is the author of a new book, The Rise of Eco-Fascism, Climate Change and the Far Right. Sam and Alex are researchers, anti-fascist activists, and the hosts of 12 Rules for What, a podcast about the far right. So this week, we talk all about what uh, climate change is going to mean for our politics, and particularly about how the far right has succeeded in developing a narrative about climate breakdown that moves beyond the climate denialism of the past and starts to really construct a kind of xenophobic nationalist response to the movement of people that is going to come from climate breakdown, as well as a kind of authoritarian statism that uh, will be pursued uh, by states in response to it. Uh, This is a really interesting discussion, and I'm really glad to have had Sam on the podcast to talk about it. So please make sure that you share this on social media. You can tag us at A World to Win Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And make sure that you sign up to our Patreon if you haven't already. We've had new subscribers recently. So thank you so much to everyone who has signed up to support our Patreon, uh, which allows us to keep bringing you the podcast. So without further ado, first, I'm going to give you a word from our sponsor, and then we will move on to the main discussion with Sam Moore on his book, The Rise of Ecofascism. This episode of A World to Win is brought to you by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for listeners like you. One that you might like is We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice by Mariam Kaba. What if social transformation and liberation isn't about waiting for someone else to come along and save us? What if ordinary people have the power to collectively free ourselves? In this timely collection of essays and interviews, Mariam Kaba reflects on the deep work of abolition and transformative political struggle. As Eve L. Ewing puts it, I want to say this is a generation-defining book, but that feels wrong because I know it will be shaping political imaginations for a century or more. It's generations-defining. This is a classic in the vein of Sister Outsider, a book that will spark countless radical imaginations. Find We Do This Till We Free Us at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the UK and US receive free shipping on orders over £20 or $25, respectively. Hello, and welcome to this episode of A World to Win. Today, we are talking to Sam Moore, author with Alex Roberts of the brilliant book, The Rise of Ecofascism, Climate Change and the Far Right. How are you doing today, Sam? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Not too bad. So, well, not too bad considering the news that we've just heard over the last few days of how well Marine Le Pen has done in the French presidential elections. Now, we know Le Pen has been one of the most, shall we say, innovative figures in terms of trying to kind of marry her far-right anti-immigrant xenophobic views with some sort of comments on environmentalism. So moving away from the tradition that there is on the right of basically kind of ignoring or denying climate breakdown and has made various comments about the need to kind of reinforce Europe's borders as uh, climate breakdown pushes people out of many parts of the global south. How are you feeling about uh, Marine Le Pen doing so well in this election? I think the answer to that is obvious. And what do you think her remarks tell us about, you know, this relationship that you chart so well across the course of your book between authoritarianism and fascism and environmentalism? 
So I think one of the things to say about this is that what this election in particular really marks is the decline, which we've been seeing for maybe 10, 12 years, of the of liberalism uh, and its collapsing ability to give people things that are useful or that they want in their lives. And what the far right is able to do in France, as well as elsewhere, is essentially speak to things that are intimately involved in people's lives in a way that liberalism is increasingly unable to do. So the real story here, I think, is not just Marine Le Pen's increasing canniness, although I think that's an incredibly important dimension of her rise, but also the collapsing liberal offer, basically, to the to the to the to the to voters. In terms of France in particular, France has got a weird case. It's broadly nuclear powered. About 75% of its energy mix is nuclear power, which puts it the highest in the world, basically. Of course, there are problems that ecological problems with, with nuclear power, but it's not a country that is broadly reliant on, for example, massive fossil fuel infrastructure like Norway or Germany or you know, Poland or the UK, indeed. So the energy politics there that the far-right candidates and the centrist candidates are able to put forward are not so much about the question of fossil fuels, although that does come up from time to time. Really what they're about is the question of French identity and the way that relates to the environment. And so as you were kind of alluding to in your question, there's a kind of tension in the way that the far-right addresses climate change in particular, or indeed nature politics in particular, which is that on the one hand, the far-right wants to affirm capitalism's expansionary dynamic, that is, its capacity to utilise nature more and more in new and diverse ways continuously. It kind of suck up the whole globe into its kind of value capture apparatus. That's one part of what capitalism is keen to do. But of course, in doing so, it destroys various aspects of, of nature, of the natural world. But it also has this other aspect, which of course people are listening to this show are very familiar with, which is the superstructure, to use the, the slightly clunky Marxist terminology, of things like nationalism and so on, which allows those natural landscapes which are being obliterated by capitalism to be kind of paradoxically affirmed as the root of the people, the Volk, and so on, in its different formulations. And that's what the far, that's where the far right really kind of sits. It sits in the contradiction between these two things. On the one hand, affirming the expansion dynamic, on the other hand, affirming the kind of the nation that is supposed to kind of exist within that desecrated landscape. And so when we've seen Le Pen talk about environmentalism, and we absolutely have, when we've seen her talk about it, it's not so much about energy policy, it's not so much about a green transition, it's really about the French natural landscape and what it means to be French in that rooted and uh, quite frankly kind of anti-Semitic way that she talks about it. So can you talk a little bit more about the history of this relationship between the far right and the kind of valorization of the land, the philosophical roots of it, the kind of political roots of it, and how it's played out across European history. So it's it's European history in the sense that it's a it's kind of colonial project, but of course it finds most of its sharpest expressions in uh, European colonized places, right? Mm. So the place where we kind of look to this is is across the colonized world. In particular, there's a kind of set of disputes that happen in the you know, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, about the utilisation of nature for the colonial project. So there's, on the one hand, a kind of quite early scientific interest in things like nature, in things like botany, and so on, and the uses they can be put to. And then there's also a kind of imperial management process in which people who um, lived in the, these places and still live there are, need to be kind of suppressed politically from their traditional ways of life. And then there's the kind of the capitalist dimension to this all, which is that the, the land needs to be put to work. And these three things, although they seem quite similar on the surface and have lots of intimate connections, they're actually kind of splits in the way in which colonial management dealt with nature politics. 
Increasingly over time, however, as we move into kind of the late 19th century, there's, a, there's an urge towards or a move towards the kind of direct domination of people's way of life via something like imperial management. The signal case for this is, of course, things like the laws against the use of forests by um, people in India um, by uh, under, under British rule, um, which is that basically people were not allowed to utilize the forests in the ways they had been doing so for you know, a long time at that point in order to, that, that a certain kind of ideology of racialized control over nature or racialized communion with nature, that is, the British saw themselves as having a certain intimate relationship to nature, this could be kind of affirmed and deepened and so on. But of course, also it dovetails very neatly with a kind of capitalist utilization of the forests for, for other, other means, mining in particular. And so there's a kind of a multiple different contradictory parts of the way in which the forest or the colonial project more generally has attempted to utilize, put nature to work. And in doing so is needed to construct various kinds of racialized ideologies of the way in which different races relate to nature. So... A big part of the colonial project was, and, and the kind of narrative of colonialism was these kind of enlightenment narratives around like the kind of reasoned and rational, enlightened West against the backwards, uncivilized East. And those kind of dichotomies, which work in pairs, linked up the West and reason and industry against the kind of backwards uncivilized, unindustrialized rest of the world. And that kind of helped to bring together this project of colonialism, developmentalism, and racism, basically. To what extent do you still think that those Enlightenment dichotomies are at work here in the way that the far right discusses environmentalism? And also, obviously, you know, liberals are very guilty of igniting these same sorts of dichotomies as well. I mean, Macron has now said he's going to make his entire campaign basically about the Enlightenment. And he's been just as guilty of kind of spreading racist tropes about the rest of the world. Well, perhaps not just as guilty, but certainly he's been guilty of of, uh, of kind of racism and Islamophobia as well. So this isn't obviously something that's just kind of confined to the right. It's about these narratives that we use to describe the West, I suppose, and its relationship to the rest of the world. Yeah, so I think that's a very complicated position that needs to be kind of teased out here. I think I think I think you're right to say that there's a uh, a way in which uh, Macron propagates those kind of tropes as well as as Le Pen, and definitely definitely true. He's also, of course, responsible for a massive increase in the authoritarian power of the French police, uh, making it, for example, illegal to film police while they're going about the daily work, or, or indeed on protests, which makes it impossible to hold them accountable for the abuses of power. And uh, of course, there are many. So there, there is both a kind of a rhetorical aspect to it, but there's also a, just a, a straightforward, like legal uh, framework that he's that he's utilizing. So I think that there's a, a complicated relationship between, on the one hand, a kind of neoliberal centrism and the far right uh, as a kind of political project. We see the far right as a collection of ways of reproducing the social whole or proposals for reproducing the social whole that utilize tactics or strategies that are inadmissible to conventional liberal thought. That is, they have to be kind of hidden from view. Nevertheless, the critical aspect of that definition is that we strongly think that those forms of reproduction, those forms of incredibly violent and uh, often brutalizing reproduction that the far right uh, affirms in its various forms, um, you know, the military management of borders, uh, the use of internment camps, uh, at its most extreme um, genocide and so on. So the, the things that the far right affirms are nevertheless actually quite essential to and useful for the reproduction of capitalism as a whole. So it's not that there's kind of a, a separate liberal mode of doing politics, a separate far right mode of doing politics, but in some ways the, the far right is the kind of the, the underlying secret 
of liberalism, that it re- requires the things that the far right openly affirms in order to reproduce itself. And so even though on the one hand, there's a kind of a, a need for uh, to separate out, I think, just like strategically, how liberals operate from how the far right operates. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, there's a kind of sliding between them all the time. And I think one of the things we're identifying in the book is particularly when it comes to climate change, particularly when it comes to the forms of multidimensional problems that climate change will entail for all aspects of social life, not just for some sort of natural form, all aspects of social life will be um, you know, degraded or transformed or uh, rendered kind of, um, into a kind of crisis by climate change. In those moments, the the far right and liberalism will become much more kind of closely aligned and mm. the, the tension between them will, will become much more visible. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we see this many, many times throughout history in terms of the choice posed to liberals between conceding to the far right and doing what needs to be done to actually tackle many of the challenges that their policies have created. Um, And it always is, yeah, as you say, kind of, they always side with the right. You've mentioned this several times now, the tension that underpins the rise of ecofascism is one between the expansion or the, the accumulation of capital and the protection of nature. How does the right propose to solve or overcome this tension? So this is where things start to get kind of weird, because in some ways, the way they solve it is by obfuscating scale, right? On the one hand, we have a global system of accumulation, which addresses the whole of the the world, and as a byproduct, in the form of fossil fuels and carbon dioxide of the atmosphere, transforms the whole of the world. On the other hand, we have collections of local natural environments that are affirmed by nationalists of various forms. And so there's kind of a a real strong disconnect that seems to be continuously happening. And this happens across the far right. So on the one hand, you have people like the Christchurch shooter, who on the one hand wants to think of there being a global environmental crisis, but on the other hand, wants to clarify that or kind of describe that as not really a crisis in the environment, a crisis in nature, but a crisis in population, right? So he says Mm. the opening lines of 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 the manifesto are, it's about the birth rates, right? He repeats that three times. Because he's not really talking about the environmental crisis. He's talking about the environmental crisis in the form of birth rates, or as he sees the kind of the, the replacement of, of, of Australians uh, by, by Muslims, which is, of course, a, mm. a ridiculous conspiracy theory, no basis at all. So because there's a kind of this transformation of scale between different aspects of the climate crisis, um, or sorry, not different aspects of the climate crisis, the transformation of scale between totally different things that utilize the framework of environmentalism as a kind of a, a screen in front of them, there is the, all, the, all these kind of transformations that become quite unpredictable and strange. Another really good example is QAnon. So QAnon, in some sense, is, is although it's, it's, it's thought of, I think, still by many people as a, a quite a simple conspiracy theory about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and so on. I would argue that actually QAnon has increasingly over the last you know, year or two uh, during the pandemic in particular, become a kind of whole cosmology, a whole way of framing or thinking about the entire world. And into that fit everything, including things like climate change. However, what actually happens when we think about climate change is that because of the intensely moral character of the politics of QAnon, namely Donald Trump, infinitely good, Hillary Clinton, infinitely bad, things like the incremental change in the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere you know things like tiny little kind of uh changes in in the parts per million and the uh their their, their effects on uh, global environmental systems none of these things kind of register as properly political objects for them they're not able to discern them and therefore the politics becomes manichian um, it becomes kind of intensely moral because it's transforming between several different scales of political thought, several different modes of political thought. And so what I would say about the far right in general 
is that they're never able to address the climate crisis directly, but only in a mediated form. And in that mediated form, it becomes a, simply a way of propagating their, their kind of you know, original talking points or original policy proposals. Now, there is some, I suppose, basis to what people like Marine Le Pen is saying in the sense that we are going to see mass movements of people as a result of climate breakdown. We are already seeing mass movements of people as a result of climate breakdown, but these movements aren't affecting the West to the same extent as they are affecting the global South. What like, should the, the left, what should progressives be saying about this? And what is a kind of fair and just way to respond to mass movements of people in response to a crisis that has largely been generated not by them, but by the wealthy? So I think it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to put our, our finger on. There's something extremely obvious to say, right, which is that we should respond to the maximum possible extent with a kind of politics of solidarity. Mm. Uh, and that will require a politics of solidarity that understands solidarity not as a kind of a, a sameness between us. That is that you and I say, you know, both work in the same workplace and therefore we both have the same interests kind of directly. But that a solidarity that works through the way in which the governing splits of capitalism on a global scale namely the construction of borders, the construction of, of uh, racialization, uh, and so on, have operated in order to divide people. So a, a way of, we need a mode of solidarity that allows the difference of position that you and I have as compared to someone um, from the global south who has, as you were saying, uh, the intense need to move. We need a mode of solidarity that can work through these contradictions and I think in some ways get to a, a kind of common humanity beneath all of them. Now that sounds somewhat wishy-washy. That sounds somewhat like a kind of a, you know, kind of a, a kind of liberal sop itself, right? Um, you know, just kind of assert a common humanity. But I genuinely think that we need something like that. On the one hand, a new notion of nature that contains a kind of notion of solidarity between people on a global scale because of their differences, because of the ways in which capitalism has separated them, governed them, split them up, and so on, not because of their mutual similarities. Although that will still, of course, require a kind of a articulation of an underlying common humanity. It makes sense. And I think the thing that you mentioned there, which is um, how this ongoing process of racialization feeds into and is linked to the dynamics of capital accumulation is really important because... There is obviously a way in which narratives around climate breakdown can feed into and reinforce these processes of racialization, just as we are seeing the emergence of quite strong and powerful movements to start challenging that, right? Yeah, we will need much more intricate and much more fully fledged and much more nuanced notions of uh, complicity, I think. And this is the kind of the difficult truth. This is in some ways the kind of theoretical task, I think. People on the left are very fond of saying things like, 100 companies produce 71% of all uh, carbon emissions, which is true, it is. Um, but nevertheless, what are those companies doing? Well, they're producing the life world through which people in the global north live through, right? That is that is what they are doing. And so there is a kind of tension between you know the life world that you and I exist in, in, in the UK, right? And the survival of the planet as a whole. And these are, I don't have a kind of solution to how that, that would work, but I think that we need a much more nuanced notion of complicity that doesn't forget that there is an absolutely... 100% a kind of class distinction to who is controlling this capital accumulation process, who is rendering the world useful to capitalism, but nevertheless doesn't shy away from the fact that um, uh, you and I and everyone you know, like us uh, in the global north, the way in which we live our lives is manifestly destructive to the way in which people in the global south live their lives. 
And that's a kind of contradiction that we need to be able to work through rather than, I think, kind of merely displacing uh, the politics of climate change onto some sort of distinct group of people um, that are not us. Because that way, I think, lies the, you know, the danger of, 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 of lots of fire politics to say, you know, it is not us in general or not us as a, as a group um, who are complicit in the destruction of, of, of the life worlds of people in the global south. But it is, you know, this particular isolated group of people. And of course, that will almost inevitably be cashed out in the form of things like anti-Semitism and, and so mm. on on the far right. So, I mean, this kind of butts up against one strategy that we've seen on the left, which is to say it is, you know, the top, let's say 10% of people in the world who are responsible for the vast majority of emissions. And so that attempts to build solidarity among the remaining 90% is, you know, a central part of that political project. Yet, there is also this point that you're making that the way in which we live our lives and you know the vast majority of people in the global north live their lives is not sustainable if we are going to decarbonize in a way that is just so how do we marry a politics of solidarity with the recognition that big things are going to have to change in the way that we in the global north live our lives and also a recognition that it is the historic emissions of states predominantly in the global north and people predominantly and companies in the global north that have brought us to this place because obviously we have that danger of pushing a very negative narrative that alienates people and makes them not want to identify with the project as a whole so how can we balance those two things there, there is a need to rearticulate pleasure and what, what how, how pleasure operates mm. there's a need to rearticulate meaning and how meaning operates there's a need to rearticulate um, forms of community and how they operate and in some sense, the the moment we find ourselves in is defined by, on the one hand, a kind of a blooming of new forms of, of of pleasure, and on the other and and solidarity and meaning and so on and a community. On the other hand, it's defined by kind of a intense restriction of all those things at the same time. So, how exactly we've? I don't think there's a one there's a kind of unified, one size fits all answer to exactly how that works. I mean, I, you know. Um, I think that the, the reason why I'm having difficulty answering it is because it is genuinely a profound contradiction in the whole of environmentalism. Um, yeah, totally. Uh, and I think part of the reason that it is so difficult is because, and actually I had a similar sort of conversation with my previous guest, Kojo Karam, when we were talking about empire, which is like, how can you articulate the the horrors of empire, basically, to a population that generally identifies with the nation state and therefore when you say this nation state has committed crimes is likely to kind of feel as though you're saying you've committed crimes right yes and obviously that is going to be alienating to lots of people here in the global north many of whom now are literally kind of struggling to survive and they're going to respond to that by saying well you know i haven't done anything wrong i'm just kind of trying to live my life based on these infrastructures that um that exist and that i have little choice other than to engage with so I think it kind of comes down to this question of how we build identification with something beyond the state and how we're able to kind of exploit existing contradictions. Like it was very obvious over the last few days, right, that Rishi Sunak, who's literally a non-dom and not, is not paying tax in the UK, is not someone with whom you, you know, as an average person would be able to identify. And like yeah. the same thing with kind of corporate executives jetting off around the world. The fact that over the last few weeks like years fossil fuel companies have made massive massive profits while people have been struggling to heat their homes so there is a kind of i guess more like class-based populist element that you can bring into this whilst also saying and we're going to need to make some big changes right 
Yeah, I mean, I think so. Maybe I should revise something my answer earlier, which is that I do think that the, the the question of class and the question of class, not just in a kind of a rich and the poor sense, but a question of class in the sense, you know, the Marxist sense, um, the owners of the means of production, the, the people who are um, forced to sell their labor on the marketplace, right? That distinction uh, is incredibly useful. Um, so it's not just that there is a, a racialization process, but there's also simultaneously another process. And I think the, the the question of how we relate to those strategically is the question of how we kind of marry those two. There's a there's a, there's a, there's a line from Jason Moore, which I'm going to try and look up because I think it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a really good line. Just a second. Okay, so this is just a, a quote from a, a text by Jason Moore, uh, who wrote a book called Capitalism in the Web of Life, which I highly recommend, and also another book called uh, History of the World and Seven Cheap Things with Raj Patel, yeah. which I also recommend. Um, We've had him on the podcast. Great, oh, wonderful. Yeah. So Jason Moore writes in, in, the, in this, this short text, the history of justice in the 21st century will turn on how well we can identify these antagonisms and mutual interdependencies. That is, the, um, on the one hand, the antagonism between the rich and uh, people in the global south and mutual interdependencies. That is the mm-hmm. construction of a kind of a, a global life world that is you know, uh, both global and also simultaneously divided, fractured, governed, and so on. And how adeptly we can build political coalitions that transcend these planetary contradictions. So this is just like a really, really succinct mm. statement of exactly like the tension that we're finding ourselves in. I think that, to be honest, like given how extraordinarily disproportionate the carbon emissions of the super rich are, I think it's quite an easy sell that, you know, that that is the first thing that, that absolutely must go. Um, mm. There's a there's a great line from a guy called Joshua Torella, who is a, a, a kind of a analyst of, of internet political subcultures, um, who said, who, and the, the line is, while there is still one single billionaire, I will not eat the bugs, right? I will not like uh, the bugs here refer to attempts to produce kind of high protein foods uh, through the use of insects, basically. Um, you know, I, while there is still a single billionaire in the world, I will not like submit myself to a kind of a a self kind of a, a penury uh, in, in in environmental for the sake of the environment. I think that's a that's a kind of difficult thing to assimilate to a politics, but I think nevertheless it's a it's a useful or kind of interesting slogan to think through. Naturally, these narratives are not just going to be being deployed in the global north, whether these are kind of you know progressive narratives about decarbonisation or um, extreme far right ones. Where in the global south have we seen these narratives being pushed by um, domestic elites? And to what extent have these, you know, pretty extreme far right narratives been deployed in places that you might not expect with some success? Yeah, so the, the two main examples I think that are useful to think through here, maybe there's three actually, uh, are India, Brazil and the Philippines. Mm. So in India, we, uh, with the rise of Modi, we've had a, a politics develop um, or that has been kind of nascent in, in, in Indian politics for a long time, but come much more strongly to the fore of essentially uh, anti-Islamophobia. Uh, Right, um, Hindutva, like a, a kind of a politics of the the Hindu nation, which is uniquely spiritually pure, uniquely clean, uniquely um, in touch with nature, uniquely uh, attuned to the question of what needs to be done in nature. And so, this is another example of the way in which the climate crisis is mediated as a totally different kind of thing by far right politicians. Modi, for example, has called for the greater thinking through of um, yoga in the context of the climate crisis. And I should say that you know, yoga is in, uh, doesn't just mean the, the kind of collection of you know, poses and stretches and exercises um, that we might associate with it in the, in, in the West. It does. It is a kind of a, a fully developed spiritual system. This is not like a completely ridiculous thing to say. But nevertheless, there is a kind of a, a remediation of climate crisis in an intensely Islamophobic way by Modi. 
And this touches on another kind of aspect that I think is really important to think about, which is it's not just a question of mitigation, although it's mostly a question of mitigation of climate change in the West at the moment. It's also a question of adaptation to climate change. So mitigation is energy policy and so on that allows us to reduce the amount of climate change that we cause. Adaptation is ways of responding to the climate change that happens. So in India, which is one of the most vulnerable states in the world, there is a kind of open question about the way in which the politics of disaster relief happen. There were hints of this. There was a, I can't remember exactly what year it was. There's major natural disaster in India, a monsoon that came too early uh, and uh, was much larger than was expected. And there were kind of tensions in the politics of the response between the Hindu population or the, the Modi government rather, and the Muslim population who needed great deal of assistance. And so there's like, there, there were these kind of emerging inter-ethnic tensions in, for example, India in particular, that, that might kind of be amplified as the climate crisis deepens. And in, in, sorry, go on. Sorry, I was just going to say that, I mean, it's not a coincidence that those three um, places that you've mentioned are all kind of semi-peripheral nations that are in the process of industrializing. And therefore, that yeah. tension that you mentioned between land and capital accumulation is beginning to assert itself. Yes. I mean, how can progressives in those states start to think about their own response to that tension? One way to think about the tension is in terms of the deliberative aspect of the state, right? The deliberative aspect of the state is basically all the ways in which state policy or indeed, you know, uh, the companies, uh, for example, are appealed to by the people, democratic institutions and processes. So although it seems like a very compelling argument, and it is to some extent a very compelling argument that for people like Modi, who is a kind of a, on the one hand on the far right, quite obviously, on the other hand, essentially a kind of a developmentalist in the kind of neoliberal mode, in that he wants to you know, cut down the state and um, destroy aspects of the um, regulation and so on in order to unleash capitalism. And the, 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 the thing that he, the argument he can make here is that, yes, okay, you know, mitigation of climate change, you know, reduction of fossil fuel use, in the global north makes a lot of sense. But for India, it would be an absolute travesty if that mitigation of, of climate change were to come at the expense of the just remaining in poverty of uh, hundreds of millions of people in India. And he's, in some way, he's right to point this out. It is absolutely, it would be a disgrace. There can't be a climate politics that relies on, you know, hundreds of millions of people simply remaining in poverty. That, that, is, that is abhorrent and we should oppose that. That being said, the way in which Modi has been doing this is to essentially shred the deliberative aspects of the state. So shred all the ways in which people make them, their voices heard, in which the, the, the poor people in India, right, that's called the proletariat, are able to um, make their voices heard and influence what the state does or how industrial policy works and so on. And so what has happened is that there's a transformation of the state. Yes, uh, there is some degree of, of growth in the Indian economy at the expense of extraordinary risks to the lives of the poor, of poor people in India, right? Most famously, of course, this happened uh, a while ago, a few decades back, the, the Bhopal disaster, which is a um, chemical plant owned by an American company that essentially exploded. And there, was a, there was a detonation there, and it killed thousands and thousands and thousands of people, left people um, mutilated and, and scarred for life, right? It's an extraordinary disaster. And after that, there was all kinds of legislation that was put in place to protect this kind of accident from ever happening again, prevent it from ever happening again. And what the Modi government has been doing over the last few years is actually dismantling all of that legislation. So on the one hand, there is a developmental aspect mm. here. On the other hand, there is a direct assault on the conditions of life of people in India. And so yeah, the, the, I, the way I would think about it is like that there needs to be a kind of development, absolutely. There nevertheless needs to be a kind of development that is like thoroughly democratic. This 
links neatly to a question that I wanted to ask you, which is about this idea of authoritarian environmentalism, which may or may not end up being linked to the other elements of fascism that you mentioned. So kind of over racism, paramilitarism. And the obvious place that this is being deployed is in China. There was a great book that came out not long ago called China Goes Green, which explicitly analyzes this idea of authoritarian environmentalism and looks at the way in which the Chinese state has developed a kind of imaginary of the natural world and the state's relationship to it that has, in some cases, succeeded in in kind of supporting decarbonization, in some cases has failed, and in some cases in the kind of classic seeing like a state way has created all sorts of complex and unpredictable other effects. So the the classic example was afforestation, where the Chinese government claims a, a, you know, you know, legitimately in some ways success in planting lots of trees. But the way in which those trees were planted had other effects on the natural environment that weren't necessarily positive. And, you know, this is obviously being pursued alongside a kind of assault on the labor movement. So, how should we think about this idea of authoritarian environmentalism? Because it crops up sometimes on the left with people saying we don't have time for, let's say, a democratic grassroots response to climate breakdown. We have to have the state acting quick and fast and, you know, doing stuff that is going to decarbonize whatever the state in inverted commas doing that would look like. So how can we kind of yeah, like I suppose respond to that kind of thinking on the left and what are the dangers of that kind of thinking? This is perhaps the the kind of the main temptation, I guess, of the climate crisis for people on the left is that it seems to require, exactly as you're saying, a kind of extremely aggressive um, state response at a global scale. And it does require that. That, that is that is correct. Um, but the, the, the track record of things like authoritarianism are, are disastrous. Let's not beat around the bush, right? The, mm. the, Almost all authoritarian governments have been catastrophic to the environment. There's no real case where I think you can argue uh, uh, otherwise. So on the one hand, there is a kind of a, uh, a temptation of, of immediate action. On the other hand, there is, there is a, a long history of, of these, these, projects, these projects failing. One thing I would say about the people's skeptics of democratization is that it's often discussed in the terms of people not really wanting it or people not really being committed to it. So we say, okay, yes, we, you know, we, the environmentalists, we, you know, the people, the kind of the enlightened few, we would be perfectly happy to transform or um, change the way we lived. But the, you know, the, the, the slovenly and, and often kind of like stupid masses, right? They don't want to change. I don't think that's viable at all. If you look at the way in which things like direct democratic policy writing has happened, and there have been several instances of this, the way in which that's happened has broadly been that as soon as you give people enough information, as soon as you inform people about how things actually work, uh, what the consequences of the climate crisis might be, what the options for policy are, then people actually come up, and this has been tested in France, in the US, in the UK, and all over the place. As soon as you give people that opportunity to write policy themselves, what these kind of you know, um, assemblies come up with is generally quite radical, quite quick, and quite kind of uh, you know, equitable in the way it's, uh, it's, it's organized. And then what has consistently happened is that, for example, you know, it's come full circle again back in France. What has happened, for example, with the Macron presidency is that there, were this, there was this deliberative body of uh, French people that was kind of um, you know, able to, to write environmental policy, and they wrote uh, quite a radical policy. And then Macron said, yes, you know, this is all very well and good, but unfortunately, we can't do any of it. 
Mm. So it's not that there is a kind of a an elite of people who are you know enlightened about this kind of thing and they can't seem to drag you know the the stupid masses forward. It's that the the, the as soon as you give people information about the world, um, they actually make extremely radical decisions. Um, it's not that we have a, a surplus of a democracy. Right, which is one way in which environmental authoritarianism is often described. There's too much democracy. We need authoritarianism instead. We don't have enough democracy. As soon as you give people democracy, they start to express it. They start to be quite radical. The problem is we have an excess of liberalism. That is, we have an excess of protections for things like capitalist interests in the governance of the world. That means that these kind of radical democratic ideas cannot be fully expressed in policy. That's what happens in the Macron case. That's what happens, you know, in the other cases where this thing has been tried. So, yeah, I would absolutely reject the idea that there is a a surplus of democracy, which means we must we need authoritarianism. I would say, in fact, we don't have enough democracy, and the authoritarianism is comes in the form of liberalism. And we've we've seen this play out very very clearly in the US because, in some ways, Biden was propelled to power based on some big pledges. You know, not yeah. transformative, but big pledges that he made about around climate, and those have all been held up by unaccountable, undemocratic interests, whether that's, you know, literally just Joe Manchin, who we know is is funded by yes, big yeah. fossil fuel companies or the kind of over-lobbying of those companies themselves. So that was in many ways an example of people saying, even to this fairly, you know, extremely like centrist politician who was forced to adopt a more progressive view on the environment based on what people were lobbying him on, who was then like pushed back into probably not that unhappily pushed back into a position of just cozying up to fossil fuel companies and not being able to pass any of that legislation that was promised. So that seems like a pretty clear example of of what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. One kind of final question, I guess. Over the last few years, we've seen one of the biggest ecological disasters that we've had over a short period of time affect the world economy, affect society, which has obviously been the pandemic. And there was a lot of discussion at the beginning of the pandemic of this is going to be great for the environment. There was the classic thing of like XR saying, you know, we are the disease on the planet. And so if we just shut down the economy, then um, that's going to be great for the environment. People also saying that it's going to remind us of the kind of fragility of the relationship between human beings and nature. And yet that hasn't happened. And actually, the far right has once again, like searched in a lot of places as a result of what's happened to the pandemic, whether that's through pushing kind of anti-vax narratives, um, whether it's just, you know, generally pushing back against the, the kind of heavy hand of the state, which has pursued in many places kind of pretty authoritarian responses, um, sometimes necessary, sometimes not. What can we learn from the way in which the right has responded to the pandemic and perhaps the way in which the left has maybe not failed, but, you know, not done as much as we could have to shape the the debate? So one of the most striking things, I think, is is how deeply inflexible right-wing politics has been. There's a very good, well, a very kind of interesting uh, New York Times article that came out, I think, on the you know, the, 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 during the during the very early days uh, back in March 2020, which is discussing the politics of the Republicans' response to the coronavirus. And in some ways, what the, the and, and what the, the columnist says is that this crisis has, in some ways, been handed to the Republicans on a plate. Right? It's the kind of perfect crisis. It's an extremely deadly virus. It circulates very rapidly. It's come from China. It looks like it's the kind of perfect thing that the you know, U.S. Republicans would be able to utilize as a you know, a talking point in their in their their politics, and yet they kind of fail to do so for quite a long time. Right? There was a kind of inflexible rigidity to the way in which they thought about uh, their their politics. Namely, 
that they simply insisted that everyone keep going back to work and uh, you know keep uh, accumulating capital basically for the bourgeoisie. And so, in that, I think what we see is that although it does seem like there is a kind of rhetorical aspect and there is an important rhetorical aspect, ultimately the interests of the right bleeding into the far right, and I think in, in the US that distinction is, is is uncertain, ultimately their interests are very strongly aligned with the interests of capital. And so although it seems like there is a kind of a cultural game playing out, I think follow the money is really quite a kind of useful mm. uh, kind of framework here. Given, that, I think, that this fact, the way we outline various kinds of futures in the book, so that the third part of the book is about, is about the future, the way in which we outline various kind of futures in the book, I think starts to seem quite compelling. On the one hand, we have a thing called fossilized reaction. A fossilized reaction is a kind of framework in which the far right allies itself, as it has done already and has been doing for decades since the rise of um, denialism, basically, allies itself with fossil fuel infrastructure as a kind of particular fraction of capital, as a particular kind of aspect of, of capital that needs to be defended, needs to be propagated, and so on. On the other hand, we have a kind of a thing we call um, batteries, bombs, and borders. Namely, it's a kind of a neoconservatism married to uh, environmentalism. So it's a kind of a way, it's a tactic for the administration or strategy rather for the administration of the relationship between nature and culture on a a global global scale. And that involves militarism, that involves intensification of borders, that involves the deployment of narratives of of, of cleanliness. I own a Tesla, so I can't be polluting. It must be the Chinese. It must be whoever else you'd you'd like to decide is, is, is kind of the the unclean uh, race, which of course is a, it takes in more or less in the history of racialization, takes more or less any race at all. So there's a oh, the, the, these two aspects um, because they are allied to different fractions of capital. Fossilized reaction being allied very directly to fossil capital, batteries, bonds, and borders being allied very directly to a kind of a green tech edge of capitalism that is uh, emerging at the moment. Given that, I would say that those are the two kind of ways in which we should think about this thing going into the future. So I think there's a yeah. Given the crisis and given the inflexibility responding to the crisis, we need to be thinking about not just what does the far right believe, but also where are the forms of the the funding for the far right coming from? Where do the far right's objective in the kind of the, I guess, the Marxist sense interests lie in the economy uh, and so on? And this will really determine their their future. Although, as I say, there are two different aspects of the way this could happen. Sam Moore, thank you for a fascinating discussion. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. It's been great.